Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. And I'm David Neer, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. You can drop us a line with your thoughts at thedownballot at dailycoast.com. Please subscribe to The Down Ballot wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. But let's go ahead and get into today's episode. What are we going to be covering today, Nier? Today, we will be talking with Daniel Nishanian, who is the editor-in-chief of Bolts Magazine, a digital magazine devoted to down-ballot elections for races that affect voting rights and criminal justice. But first, we are going to discuss how the war in Ukraine is playing out in U.S. elections. We are also going to take a look at where redistricting stands in the five states that have yet to complete new congressional maps. And finally, we're going to check back in on a strange special election for the Senate in Oklahoma. Great. Let's get started. It's now time for our weekly hits, where David Beard and I will run through some of the stories that are making headlines or that are not making the headlines they should be in the world of down-ballot elections. What are you starting us off with, Beard? So I wanted to continue an interesting discussion that we had last week a little bit, which is the influence of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the ongoing GOP primaries. We saw last week that the North Carolina Senate had an ad about it, and now we've seen two more Republican ads related to it. One, you know, pretty straightforward in Ohio, and then one kind of strange one that I'll get to afterwards in Georgia. So in Ohio, there's a five-way Senate primary for the GOP nomination, and this involves really two candidates, former Ohio Treasurer Josh Mandel and former Ohio Republican Party Chair Jane Timken. Mandel's been endorsed by the Club for Growth, and they've been spending money on his behalf. And so they've started airing an ad hitting Timken for her family's business dealings with Russian oligarchs. So the ad claims that Vladimir Putin's old oligarchs partnered with Jane Timken's family business to build high-capacity freight rail cards. And it claims that this, is, that this is essentially supplying Putin's government with military-grade machinery. And then ends sort of saying... Timken's family gets rich, Timken money funds her campaign, and she has the gall to run for the U.S. Senate. That's how the ad ends. And it's really a little bit lots of connections, you know, as opposed to the first ad being very straightforward, like these were things that Bud said and things that Bud voted for or against. This one is sort of connecting Timken's family and her business dealings with the business dealings of Russian oligarchs and what they're manufacturing and how that would be contributing to the war effort, which could certainly be effective, but certainly requires a couple more hoops to jump through than, than the North Carolina ad. It is worth noting that Ohio does have the fifth largest Ukrainian population in the United States, particularly in the suburbs of Cleveland. So we can certainly see that could be effective, and we'll see if it's an ongoing issue that makes a difference in this primary that has a lot of competitive candidates and so has a lot of like back and forth and things going on with it. And then separately, there's this very crowded primary in Georgia's 10th district, which covers sort of the central and eastern parts of the state, where the incumbent Republican Jody Heiss is running for Secretary of State. And one of the many candidates running here is Mitch Schwann. He's a retired Marine colonel, and he's running this 
very strange ad where he starts off talking about the biggest European land war in Europe since World War II, obviously talking about the Russian invasion. And he talks about how Putin is reviewing nuclear options in a very scary way. And then he claims that the problem with all this is that America is allowing trans service members into the military. And that's going to destroy our military somehow. He says that woke indoctrination will destroy our military in the ad, which is just so extremely strange that the takeaway from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the failures of the Russian military, what he takes away from this is that America shouldn't have trans service members in their military. And I'll just observe that the Ukrainian military allows LGBT soldiers to serve openly like we do. Well, Russia clearly does not. Russia is extremely homophobic from a policy standpoint. And we've seen who has the superior fighting force by and large here. So I don't know where he gets the idea that trans service members are a problem. If anything, they should be a strength considering what we've seen. You know, that's such an amazing point. And I always thought that if you want to maximize your military readiness, the worst thing you should possibly do is tell people willing to fight for you that you don't want them to fight. And Vladimir Putin did that and Ukraine didn't. And like you said, we're seeing the results. So we're going to switch to an entirely different topic. I want to talk about congressional redistricting. And we're reaching the end game in what has been a long but somewhat rushed process because of the late release of census data last year. And as of now, there are only five states that have yet to draw new congressional maps. Now, this doesn't include some other states where there's pending litigation and maps could get unended, but that maps have actually been adopted. These are five states with no legal map for the 2022 elections. So I'm going to briefly run through each of them because they're all screwed up in a different way. So at the top of the list is Louisiana. That's a particularly fascinating situation. Republicans drew a new map there that by and large looks like the old map. And Democrats, including the governor, John Bell Edwards, are very unhappy with that map because uh, about a third of Louisiana's population is black. And there's only one district with a black majority, the second district. And reformers have demanded a second black district. And of course, Republicans have refused to draw one because it would almost certainly elect a Democrat. Edwards vetoed the map. And now Republicans are seeing whether they actually have enough votes to overturn that veto. They fell short of the two-thirds supermajority on the initial vote. And there were some Republicans who actually voted against the GOP's own map. And the really interesting thing here is that in the 200 plus years that Louisiana has been a state, there are only two known instances that a governor's veto has ever been overturned. Governors are unusually powerful in the state, and there is a good chance that Edwards' veto will get sustained, which would then likely mean that the courts will draw a new map. And if the courts take reformers' views to heart, we could see another black district in Louisiana. The next and possibly even crazier. No, I'm, I'm going to say it's crazier is Florida. There, Republicans have passed an unusual two map plan where there's sort of a map A that they seem to prefer the most, but they say that if map A gets struck down, it'll be replaced by map B, which is somewhat less aggressive of a gerrymander. But Ron DeSantis, who is also a Republican, he's the governor, he is completely pissed off about the approach the legislature has taken. He wants them to go crazy, ultra, super, max, hyper, mega gerrymandered and tear apart 
a black plurality district in North Florida, make every district in the northern part of the state leaning Republican. A lot of other Republicans are not interested in pursuing that route. They think that such a map would get struck down in court. And DeSantis has pledged to veto this map or this two map plan that Republicans have passed, except he hasn't yet. And the reason is very strange, which is that the legislature has yet to forward the bill to him. And it's not clear why, what they're waiting on it may have some something to do with machinations surrounding the budget with, that they also just passed. But that one is, is totally up in the air. And if DeSantis does veto this and Republicans can't, overturn his veto, then again, we could see court-drawn maps. Very quickly, I'll run through the other three states. Uh, In Missouri, which we discussed on an episode a a few weeks ago, hardcore, far-right, hardliners are insisting on a map that creates seven Republican districts and just one Democratic district. The GOP leadership wants a 6-2 map that's essentially the same as the current map with with some changes. And Missouri has an unusually strong filibuster in its state Senate. And the hardliners have been filibustering for weeks now, and there is just no end in sight. A couple of lawsuits have been filed asking courts to take over redistricting because of this impasse. And time is really running out because the candidate filing deadline is at the end of the month in Missouri. And uh, there doesn't really appear to be any exit strategy here at all. So it's very unclear what's going to happen. Ohio is also up in the air because the state Supreme Court has struck down the GOP's congressional map as an illegal partisan gerrymander in violation of the state constitution. Republicans went and passed another map that looks very much like the first map. It seems extremely unlikely that the Supreme Court will be happy with that one. It could strike it down. Again, it's not clear where this leads. Uh, It's possible we could wind up with some sort of court-drawn map, uh, all because Republicans refuse to pass a map that is less gerrymandered than the one they're insisting on. And finally, there's the strange case of New Hampshire. It only has two congressional districts. Republicans are working on a map that would try to target one of the state's two Democrats by upending a district line that has been pretty much in place for 140 years. They want to gerrymander the first district. But for some reason, Action has not been completed on that map, uh, hasn't been signed, so uh, not really sure what the delay is. But again, the redistricting process nationwide will not be complete until these five states get their act together and actually enact new maps. And we'll be continuing to track this. And once these maps do get finalized, whenever that is, we'll definitely bring you full analysis of, of the results of those maps. So one other follow-up that I wanted to make from a previous thing that we talked about two weeks ago, we discussed Jim Inhofe, the senator from Oklahoma, his sort of prospective resignation where he announced that he would be resigning next January so that he could set up a legally questionable special election this November. A question we had at the time was, is there any way to sort of stop this or have a lawsuit about it? And we weren't sure because it was unclear who might bring that suit or or half standing and somebody is at least giving it a go. So Republican attorney Stephen Jones is asking the Oklahoma Supreme Court to bar the state's election board from carrying through with this special election that's been called later this year. Jones gained prominence nationally for representing the Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh. He was also the GOP Senate nominee in 1990 in Oklahoma. So he's been around in the state for a long time. And he's arguing that a special election can't be held until after 
the senator actually resigns. He's pointed to the 17th Amendment, which he claims only allows the governor to call a special election after the seat has actually been vacated, not for a scheduled resignation in the future. And of course, if that's true, federal laws, including the 17th Amendment to the Constitution, would supersede any Oklahoma state laws on the matter. Of course, the biggest question, as we mentioned, is one of standing, as Jones is simply representing himself in his capacity as a citizen of Oklahoma. So it's not clear exactly what injury to him is actually taking place by this election going forward. But we will at least see this addressed in court and have an opportunity to have a judge rule on rule on a case. Another point that Jones made is that Jim Inhofe could retract his resignation. There's nothing legally binding about it after the special election in November, which would create a totally bizarre situation of having essentially a fraudulent special election for a Senate seat. So there really is good reason to listen to the points he's making. But like you said, we'll have to see whether a court allows him to proceed with his case. Up next, we will be talking with Daniel Nishanian, who is the editor-in-chief of Bolts Magazine, a new digital magazine devoted to covering down-ballot elections, particularly those that affect voting rights and criminal justice. He is also a former contributing editor to Daily Coast Elections. So please stick with us when we come back. Joining us today is Daniel Nishanian, also known as Tineal on Twitter. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of Bolts Magazine, a digital magazine that focuses on local elections, particularly in the areas of criminal justice and voting rights. He's also a former contributor to Daily Coast Elections, so a big welcome, Daniel. Hi, it's really great to be here. A huge fan, obviously. <laughs> Well, Bolt Magazine is a very new publication. It just launched this year. What was the inspiration for starting something like this and how did it come about? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's it's really great to talk to you, especially about Bolts and about the work we've been doing, because because uh, you all and the work you've been doing is, is, is really an inspiration behind behind some of it. I think the 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 idea behind it is that, you know, I'm someone who cares, as I'm sure a lot of people who are listening, about voting rights criminal justice, and just really a whole host of issues where local governments and state governments have such paramount importance. And the difficulty that anyone who tries to follow these issues and understand what's going on is, is twofold. One, it's extraordinarily difficult to even know who has the authority to do what. Like, what, what does a prosecutor do? What does a sheriff do? What does a county clerk do? Uh, obviously, in different states, those have different names. The powers of these places are different. So if you're just trying to you know, fo- follow these, these issues, it can be very tricky. And then second, the informational structure, the, the, the void around these inf- elections, these powers is really great. And I think that's something that anyone who's probably listening to this will really understand, you know, that, that so much of what uh, the Illegal Elections does is trying to provide you know, resources and, and start f- filling in the gap with lower level federal elections and higher level state elections. But, um, you know, there's, there's so much to do uh, on on trying to chronicle, track, report on these local institutions. There are 3,000 counties in the U.S. Uh, and on criminal justice and voting rights, so much of what's happening is at the county level. So the, the, the idea behind Bolts was 
to create a space, an editorial platform, a publication that is comfortable leaning into those questions, doesn't have to overthink having to cover something as a national national story necessarily because those are national stories in and of themselves. There is no, nowhere else to look but the county level if you really want to think about uh, prisons and jails and incarceration. That, that's really where the action is. And uh, yeah, it's been, we, we, we launched a month ago. I invite everyone to go to go there and both read the stories we have already, but also some of the resources we are trying to put out there, the spreadsheets and databases that try and answer some questions about who has the power to do what and and when they're elected and and all of of that stuff. I've had a chance to check out some of your offerings, Daniel, and it really is so much in common with what we do at Daily Coast Elections. You mentioned these spreadsheets of detailed information about these hyper-local elections. You know, we try to get down into the weeds at DKE, but you guys are, are getting even further at the at the county level. So why don't we uh, drill down a bit? And you mentioned voting rights. Of course, that's going to be top of mind for every progressive in the wake of Donald Trump trying to steal the 2020 election. And of course, not just that, but the ongoing efforts to allow Trump to pull off what he couldn't do in 2020, the mm-hmm. attempts by the GOP to entrench themselves and and really undermine democracy. And of course, there are high-level stories that, that do get national attention. But what are you seeing as the biggest stories on this really local county level that you're tracking at Bolts? I think more and more people have come to appreciate the importance of uh, county and local officials in the apparatus of how elections run since 2020 because of what happened specifically in November and December. Uh, you know, m- millions of people were suddenly watching the Wayne uh, in Wayne County, the, in Michigan, uh, this very <laughs> this, this board of canvassers that no one had really ever heard of. Suddenly, it was, was so it was so important, and it's obviously more uh, more appreciation for that. Um, there is also um, appreciation now, I think, that there wasn't about attempts on the right uh, to take over a lot of these offices, uh, clerk offices, board of canvassers, and so on, that really controlled the machine of, of elections. And it's sort of uncharted. To some degree, we don't quite know all of that that can be done in these offices because a new sort of candidate is running for them potentially in some places trying to take, take over these county offices. And in 2022 and 2024, it, come, it could come into play, right, in terms of the, the biggest story being overturning of the elections. What I think Bolt is trying to do is fill in the, the space for people who understand that there's this problem now, but don't necessarily know where, where, don't necessarily know where, where to go as a result, other than like this big national story. Like what, what are the hotspots? What are even the officials that are relevant in any state? Because as I'm sure everyone who listens understands, then every state has a totally different system of who runs these elections locally. So actually on, on day one of Bolts, we had, uh, um, we, we had a research uh, database published that 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 drills down on every state on in, in each of the fifty states on who are the officials at the county level who run elections and and run the registration process and being able to from that gain more traction at the level of of the county clerks and and potentially in some cases state statewide levels uh, one other maybe uh, to stay at the level of generality still but one thing we're also seeing now is the importance of state courts 
for uh, for voting rights. The Supreme Courts of Ohio and, and North Carolina and Pennsylvania have played a huge role in the past few months alone in in who gets to draw the maps and how aggressive the maps are going to be for those swing states. You know, all of those states are going to have elections again for state Supreme Courts in 2022-2024. Um, that's that's another type of story that that is becoming more and more clear for people, that the more the federal court systems become closed off to claims about redistricting and voting rights, the more these state courts are becoming a, the central voting rights story. Um, and one that and one that the right is obviously very, very aware of. And so you know, we'll see how how much attention there is on on the other side. Yeah, we have definitely talked a lot about the state Supreme Court elections, both uh, at Daily Coast elections and on this podcast. Looking toward this fall, what elections do you see both on the state level, but also if you want to drill down to the county level, we love getting down into the weeds. So the more specific you want to get, the better. Uh, What are the top races that you see taking place in November? Yeah, I mean, the, there, there's so much. There's so much to watch. Both, so I think number one will be uh, the the places that uh, the places where Trumpian candidates really running on platforms of quote unquote stop, stopping the steal, arguing that 2020 election was stolen, and gesturing towards things they're going to do in 2020 to 2024, uh, 2024 mostly to to uh, crack down on on these false claims of fraud, fraud right? So. Uh, at the highest, the most obvious level, candidates like the uh, Carrie Lake, in, uh, who's running for governor in Arizona. There's m- many candidates in Arizona, in, in Georgia, in Ohio, who are running for secretary of state positions on uh, similar claims. I think what is becoming very apparent is that candidates or incumbent Republicans who are not really part of that crowd, first of all, always were obviously doing things that were threatening voter access. It's not like they waited for Trump and for 2020 to suddenly start purging voters, right? Uh, to start cl- closing down polls. This is this has been a very, a very, 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 very long game on on the right. So, and and some of them are starting to take on increasingly the language of widespread voter fraud in the context of 2020 to argue for more. We are seeing that in Ohio, for instance, where the, the the Republican incumbent in the race for Secretary of State is known as an establishment Republican, but he has been started to talk more and more about about fraud as well. Um, so that that's kind of a story to watch on how far they're going to go at the county level. We've already seen some some uh, elections won, for instance, in Texas a month ago uh, by by stop the steal candidates, uh, both at the federal level and, and county level. Um, so that's something to continue to continue watching. What kind of authority they're gonna they're gonna accumulate there's so many state state level uh, there's so many judge races and i was mentioning the ones that have to do with the more obvious ones are the state supreme court races uh the majority in in north carolina is at play for instance in 2022 one election that we are paying attention at bolts and we ran a story on is in Franklin County in Kentucky, which is a, a very small county, but it also is where uh, the, the the state capital is um, in Kentucky. And uh, as a result, a lot of the lawsuits in Kentucky that have to do with voting rights or civil rights end up going in front of this very uh, in front of this court that only has two that only has two two judges sitting on the bench. 
And conservatives are trying to oust a very uh, a judge who's been in that on that bench for 16 years this year. And um, the conservative candidate has already gotten a lot of funding, actually, from uh, conservative groups that have that have ties to to Mitch McConnell. And that's the sort of race, you know. And and the incumbent has just a fraction of that amount of money. That that to me seems like the kind of race that the right has been very good at identifying, seeing, finding, giving to, but uh, are just undercooked on the on the left. We're not we're not paying enough. The people on the left are not paying enough attention to them. And then the last thing I also want to mention, I think we just talked a lot about the Trumpian candidates and the Stop the Steal candidates. But, you know, there's so many people who are also running for these offices from a, pro- a progressive standpoint that feel like not enough is done from a county court position, but also a statewide office to expand expand the ballot. I mean, we are seeing still states uh, not, not have automatic voter registration, online voter registration, uh, and some or, or rights questions about rights restoration. And some of that is also governed at the, at the level of state officials and local officials, and they don't necessarily need a law to be passed. So I think some of that Paying attention to the progressive candidates as well would be interesting. Just one example, there was a bill in New Mexico uh, a month ago that was that 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 was meant to do so much on voting rights, including pass uh, AVR, automatic voter, tra- voter registration, restore the right to vote to anyone who's not in prison, um, and a number of other things. And it's a democratic state with huge democratic majorities, and the bill the bill failed in part due to stalling. By Republicans, but also by some uh, by some Democrats. So paying attention to who stalled that, who is running to to uh, make sure that in places where it's not about Republicans, th- things are also moving to, towards universal suffrage. You know, you raise such an interesting point. We think about so many of these elections, especially for local office, as really defensive actions uh, about trying to prevent these Trumpers and stop the steel types from getting into office. But you point out that progressives can do a whole world of good when they win these races. Are there any interesting examples that come to mind of a progressive winning something like a county clerk's office in recent years where they have really instituted reforms that have helped expand access to the ballot? Well, the the thing that immediately comes to mind when I hear your question is uh, not quite that there was just an election in Texas in Travis uh, in Travis County, uh, which is which is Austin, uh, also the the bluest part of the of, of Texas uh, for for the clerk position. And what was interesting there, uh, what was interesting in that election is that it's obviously operating under the massive uh, the, under the massive constraint of uh, of the Republican law that passed last year, but also earlier laws that we really box in what an official can do at the local level in these in these blue areas. And, and we ran an article where um, both, both both of the Democrats who were running were talking about the importance of getting creative of getting creative and trying to uh, find find ways within the law to continue pushing as much as possible, even if the Republicans have 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 constrained it. So, for instance, in 2020, a huge story in the fall was uh, somewhere else in Texas, in 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 Houston, 
the the county clerk there had really gone very far in trying to make sure that it's as easy as possible to vote, including having some places that were open for 24 hours a day. We didn't see that in other places that had uh, Democratic clerks in Texas. Now that specific reform has been banned uh, by, by, by the Republicans. But these candidates in, in Austin were talking about trying to uh, extend, I think now polls can be open until 10 p.m. So trying to make sure that they're being as creative as possible in getting there. The, the other thing that immediately comes to mind is um, – Something that is so at the control of local officials is how easy it is for people who are in jail to vote. By people in jail, I mean people who have ne- never been convicted of a, of a felony and are just being held on bail or are being held pre-trial and have the right to vote. Um, and it's really up. Well, it's they like by law they should, should be they should have access to the ballots, but that very very frequently, almost always, really depends on the goodwill of the sheriff or of the county clerk, or of the work between them of making it possible. And we have we are starting to see, in a few places, efforts by sheriffs and clerks to make that a little easier. So uh, again, in Houston, actually, um, there was uh, a polling place set up at the jail. It's one of the only places in the, in the entire country for people who are held in jail but are eligible to vote to have access to the ballot as easily as possible. Uh, and that that's something that we really only see in a few places, and that than that anyone could sort of try and ramp up around the country. And that really transitions us really well into the other big issue that Bolts Magazine covers, which is criminal justice and criminal justice-related elections. You know, we've seen that district attorney races have really become much more prominent in recent years. We've had a number of big races in big cities across the country where progressive DA candidates are challenging incumbent establishment candidates. How have you seen those races evolve, really, in the past five or ten years to where they are today? Oh, the the change on the elections has been has been really huge, and I think you know the the very first thing to say about them is the very fact that we're having a conversation about them is something that has evolved over the past five to ten years. Uh, of course, there were the elections uh, a long time ago. So some of them were uh, some of them had very uh, had, were very high profile in some cases, especially when they involved uh, someone who was part, had particularly extreme views or particularly a particularly controversial record. But the, the those were, I think, extreme cases, uh, typically. And the fact that the the vast authorities that, that DAs have to shape the criminal justice system and 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 the scope of incarceration, and that that has come into view not just in extreme cases where someone is particularly, which is like the most outrageous cases that really land them, like everyone can immediately see, but the cases that do take explanation and understanding that within the scope of what someone can do within the law, uh, you know, before we go into what is illegal or unethical. That, that prosecutors do, uh, there's such a huge amount of difference that, that can be done. And there's more and more candidates that have different sort of platforms than than the tr- traditional than than the traditional uh, than the traditional approach of prosecutors has been for the past 20, 30 years. There's been more and more candidates who have jumped in who are making very who are using DA elections as a path to lowering incarceration and changing approaches to criminal justice. And the more the and the more those candidates have, have come in, you know, really since uh, the BLM movement started 
2016 and picked up steam from there. And that's really when these offices became more into the view of the mainstream conversation. And as there are more and more candidates who jump in, there are more and more issues, I think, that are being debated. And, and, and a lot of conversations, like, for instance, we there are many more candidates now who are running on platforms of saying they will never file charges when it comes to some lower level offenses, like certain lower level drug offenses. When in there was an election in 2018, where the person who was elected DA of Boston ran on such a platform of not charging. And it was, it was a huge deal in the sense that there, there weren't that many candidates who had run on that. But now it's become much more common for candidates to run for these offices saying something like that. And, and that, that, has, that, has changed, that has changed a lot. So we've seen some real successes in electing progressive district attorneys. And then we've seen some equally strong pushback from a lot of the establishment, particularly sometimes within the district attorney offices themselves, from police officers and police unions. We've seen you know, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, George Gascon in Los Angeles, Chesa Boudin in San Francisco are all some notable examples of progressive victories that then received a lot of pushback. Boudin in particular is facing a tough recall election later this year. What have you seen the, strat- the establishment strategy having been? And what do you think are the best ways to sort of push back against this when they come after these progressive DAs who have been elected? Yeah, I think it's important to take a step back here in thinking about this question, um, because it really gets to to the prior question we were talking about. When you think about someone like Krasner or Boudin or Gascon or really a lot of other people around the country, those maybe have been the highest profile, uh, but also uh, places like uh, Austin, Texas, uh, the the suburbs of of Washington, D.C. and Virginia, uh, and, and a number of other places. If you had told people in 2016, 2017 that candidates, which is just four or five years ago, that candidates with such profiles and such platforms would come into office on the stuff they're saying, it would be such a humongous break with the status quo, not just of recent years, but of 30 years of of, uh, approaches to criminal justice, which is that the the candidates we're naming uh, were not career prosecutors. They're people who really have spent their life as their career trying to lower incarceration and champion civil rights, the idea that they, they, the idea that they would come in and, and change the offices from the inside was really just foreign to what was happening up until 2015, 2016. Um, so they, there's already been such, uh, such a humongous shift. And, uh, and, and a lot of the people who are invested in ultra, like the other side of this debate in, uh, you know, keeping approaches that are more, punitive that that uh whether it's on lower level offenses like the the war on drug or on higher level offenses because we're also speaking now much more than until three four years ago about violent crime and approaches to uh, to very long incarceration and these higher level higher level crimes and what is the best way to promote safe to promote safety through them there's all these new new conversations and uh, yeah there's a lot of push pushback from career prosecutors from police unions and now increasingly just to the also increasingly from Republican statewide officials who are paying attention in a new way to what's happening at the local level and are looking for ways to, to preempt it in some places. For instance, there's a Republican candidate who's running for governor in Pennsylvania and um, who might win the nomination. Uh, and what, what, one, of his, uh, one of his proposals is that Philadelphia should no longer get to elect its DAs. Every other part of Pennsylvania should, 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 should get to elect their DAs themselves, but not 
but not in Philly. Um, and we're seeing some of that elsewhere as well. We're also seeing some pushback within the Democratic Party in especially the past year as um, crime has increased around the country, including places that have absolutely nothing, that don't have anything like a re- re- reform DA at their helm. And there's been concerns about, about crime that has led people to champion go, going back to uh, tough foreign crime policies. And, and so this, I think 2022 is going to be a, a big test of that. I think there's, I think people are just used to the idea that tough on crime wins elections. I think that's something that's been ingrained in anyone who has followed American elections, right, for any time since the past 25, 30 years. I mean, anyone who's grown up watching clips of, I mean, I, 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 CNN always, in every presidential season, showed clip of the 88 presidential debate where um, Michael Dukakis famously didn't answer a question on the death penalty the way he was supposed to answer it. Um, so there's just been ingrained that, that tough on crime wins elections. What we have seen in 2016, 2017, that that's no longer the case um, in a lot of these elections, and people are surprised by that. For instance, in Philadelphia, Larry Krasner was meant to be in a t- ton of trouble in 2021 because he was up for re-election. He won by, he won by a lot in both the primary and the general election. And I think 2022 is going to continue being being a test of that of that question. And if you were going to be giving advice to someone like a Chase Abudin, who, as we mentioned, is up for a recall in June about pushing back against these establishment attacks, what might you say? I I think, first of all, that people underappreciate the degree to which in many of the places that, that we are talking about, there's been such an awareness of the harms of mass incarceration because so many voters know someone who has been in prison, who has been in jail, who has lost the, who has lost the right to vote. Um, if you put a, a ton of people in uh, prison and jail uh, over 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 the long over, over this long period, uh, there is a very different awareness of the harms of, of, of incarceration than than there may have been when incarceration was much what was much lower, was was much lower. And I think the candidates we're talking about have been aware of that and have been able to to talk to that in a way that's very different from the candidates. And I think they're continuing to do so. One thing that's new this year is there's a lot more conversation and pushback around the rise of violent crime around around the country that I was just discussing. And it is very important for anyone who is running on a progressive platform, on a reform platform, to talk about why they think their policies are not just uh, are addressing the harms of mass incarceration and, and racial injustice, but are also important to promote uh, safety and, and, and approach the question of safety in a different way. Um, we saw some of that go both ways. I think in 2021, I think there was a kind of a dress rehearsal in a lot of um, elections for mayor in particular, where there were a lot of progressive candidates for mayor who were trying to make the case that uh, we really have it wrong that if you want to address uh, like addressing crime really means much more investments in transit and housing. And we're talking about their platforms on transit and housing and other issues as something that contributes to safety, which isn't necessarily new, but I think it's very important because it's it's not a it's not the kind of thing that is going to be that is going to happen overnight. And having those having those conversations is going to be very important. The last thing I will say is that I think many of the arguments don't really hold up 
because when you look at the places where crime has increased, as I was saying, it's increased in so many places that do not have anyone like a, a, a reformed DA at their head in places with Republican DAs or the many places that don't have that the democratic data has no particular inclination towards reform. And we are seeing the same trends, right? So there's the, the argument that there's something specific about uh, places like um, like suburban Virginia or, or Philadelphia, where um, the argument is made against the reform camp, just doesn't necessarily hold up in that aspect. It's just very hard to make that argument in the electoral context because, you know, that doesn't quite it doesn't necessarily work to point out the statistics elsewhere in the country or something like that. So I think the being able to connect the reforms to improvements of safety is going to be especially important. So beyond the San Francisco recall that we mm-hmm. talked about a little bit, what are some of the key district attorney races on your radar, either in the primaries or in the general election this fall? And particularly any new progressive challengers that you're excited about? There's also going to be a lot of progressive candidates who are running now to take over offices that have long been in the hands of people with, uh, you know, much more uh, conventional approach to, uh, to um, approach to prosecution. The primaries I think that are most interesting are going to be um, in places uh, like, like uh, North Carolina. Like uh, there's a lot of places um, around LA and, and uh, LA and San Francisco, because those are the two places where reform DAs have really made their mark and are now coming under under attack but in you know eight, eight to ten California counties the other the other side is of stuff is happening where there are progressive candidates that are that are trying to take over uh, offices that are sort of anti-reform and that have opposed reform at the at the statewide level uh, I mean if you're if you're in California the chances are you are in a county with like that because there's, there's there's really a lot uh, another one that's very interesting is is, is Clark in Nevada is Clark in Nevada which is which is Las Vegas where there's a, a DA there who is among the most prolific in the country in seeking the death penalty in cases. Because the because the death penalty is an example where it really comes down to the county level. It really comes down to whether the incumbent DA wants to seek the death penalty or not. In some places, it never happens. And, and just a few counties account for the huge share of, the de- of, of, of new death cases in the U.S. And one of them is Clark County in Nevada. And, and the challenger there has promised to never seek the death penalty. That, that race in and of itself could really change the numbers on the death penalty across the country, which, which sounds weird to say because it's just one county, but that's really the, that's really the kind of scope that, that, we are, that, that we are talking about in terms of the authority these people have. Another one I'll mention is the DA race in Boston. Um, what's interesting in Boston, I was already mentioning it before, is the incumbent just left because uh, she was appointed to a federal office and the Republican governor there uh, just appointed a new DA in Boston who's actually running as a, a Democrat in 2022 and is facing at least one at least one opponent, the, the filing deadline hasn't passed yet, so he may have others still. But that is going to be a very important race because Boston was one of the key the key places where progressives took, took power in 2018 in his offices, and it's going to be very important to follow this year. This has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. We have been talking with Daniel Nishanian, who is the founder and editor-in-chief of Bolts Magazine. You can find him on Twitter at at Daniel, that's like Daniel, but with a T. But Daniel, why don't you also please tell folks how they can 
learn more about your work and what they can do to support it. Um, yeah, well, again, it was, was a really great conversation. It's so much fun to talk to people who, who get the importance of these uh, these offices and looking looking at the county level, the state level. And, you know, anyone who is interested in, in our coverage or really learning more about the races that I'm talking about uh, and seeing seeing the maps we have and seeing the coverage we have, you go to boltsmag.org and you can sort of explore, um, you can explore the page I was discussing that I think has been very exciting to me to have because I've already learned so much of it about who runs elections at the county level. You can see some of the maps about the places that, that are very important elections at the county level. Uh, you can also obviously go to Twitter and uh, find us also at boltsmag and on, and, and, and on, and on Facebook. Uh, you know, we, we have a newsletter, we have a support us page and everything else that you might uh, want to support us. Well, thank you for joining us. We look forward to having you back on soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Daniel Nishanian for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you find podcasts. You can reach us by email at thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to The Down Ballot and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Kara Zelaya, and editor Tim Einenkel. We'll be back next week with a new episode.